Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I talked to 39-year-old former San Quentin inmate James Houston. In our conversation, James talks about his upbringing, his life within prison, what it's like to be a free man, and the incident that led to his incarceration. Welcome to the show. Today I'm sitting with uh, James Houston, who is a recent uh, graduate of the Last Mile program and former inmate at the San Quentin Prison. Um, James, we talked a little bit before the show, but first of all, thank you so much for taking the time just to chat with me um, and let the listeners hear a little bit about your life story. Um, What I'd like to do to start is to sort of have you introduce yourself and tell uh, the listeners a little bit about your background, where you grew up, your life story, um, and we'll take it from there. All right. Thanks, Dan, for the uh, opportunity to tell my story. Uh, I'm originally from Decatur, Illinois. I uh, moved to Richmond, California at the age of six. I come from a home that uh, my, uh, my father was abusive to my mother. At six years old, the kind of incident doing the work that I was able to do on myself inside prison, uh, the turning point for me was... At six years old, I watched my father uh, physically uh, abuse my mother in front of me. Uh, my sister, uh, my brother at the time was around five years old. Mm-hmm. And I saw him go up to my father, bite him on the knee. Then my father picked him up and threw him over a couch. And as a kid, at six years old, I'm the oldest. I felt I was supposed to be the one who kind of protected my mother. And, and I felt like a coward from that moment on. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the... Uh, motivating factors in, in my life of why, you know, I was able to, I did a lot of things that I did, uh, seeking, uh, approval or mm-hmm. feeling like, you know, I was a man, I didn't have no male figures in my life. Mm-hmm. And so when I gravitated to the streets, once I moved to Richmond at six years old, you know, my mother, she had been traumatized from the abuse that she suffered at the hands of my father. Mm-hmm. And so she passed it on to us. She never sought help or got help for her issues coming out of that uh, relationship. And I looked a lot like my father that I understand mm-hmm. now. And so for me, on the inside, it only made it worse because I interpret that as, you know, she knew that I let her down in that moment. And so I always wanted to make that up to her. And uh, at the age of six, I mean, in the sixth grade, I, have, I was doing pretty good in school. Mm-hmm. I was a good student. I loved school. I, you know, was good with people. And then once we started moving, I guess it was something in me that I always had to feel like I was somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I would start picking fights with the, the bullies or, or the aggressive people in, in the schools there. And I kept moving. And, and my mother uh, never really got into another relationship. And I had a lot of responsibilities placed on me. So that kind of further... Uh, the the instinct in me that felt like I was a protector. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest. My mother had to work. And so when she would have to work, and sometimes she worked late at night, and I had to watch my brother and sister. And I remember having that fear. And one of the dreams I used to have growing up was that one day somebody would break into the house. And for some reason, I would always say that they would say that we're going to take one of you. And I always was like, I'm going to sacrifice myself. It would be me. Mm-hmm. And so... As I seen my mother struggle uh, later in life as I got older, I, you know, I played football and, and 
football really kept some stability in me. I was able to channel some of that that uh, anger that I had inside of me because a piece of me, I did love my father. I come to find out later in life, but a piece of me also hated that piece that loved him. Hmm. And I didn't know that was okay, hmm. that it's okay to love you know, the person and hate the actions. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you cool. talked a little bit about moving around a lot. Were you moving around a lot be- because your mom was taking do- jobs in a variety of different locations, and so you had to move from place to place? Or what was the reason for always uh, having to move around? We moved around a lot because uh, we couldn't afford the rent. My mother was a single parent raising three kids on her own. And so that I, you know, at the time, not knowing uh, what I know now, mm-hmm. uh, how difficult it is to raise uh, three kids mm-hmm. as a single parent, it's enough doing it. You know, two parents, especially nowadays. Mm. What and so what happened to your father? Did he just disappear altogether? Did they get a divorce? What What happened to him? When we uh, moved to uh, California, mm. pretty much severed all ties. I remember you know, having conversations at you know briefly, you know, moment, uh, maybe once every two or three years. And I remember one conversation. I was I always felt like I I would do stuff thinking he would come save me. Like, I would lie and say I was in the gang and carrying guns at, like, eight years old, never seen a gun or nothing like that. But thinking that, you know, if I got in trouble enough, that somehow he would come to the rescue. Mm-hmm. And it never happened. So you talked about football a little bit. What was high school like? So you're on the football team. What was a, what was a day in the life of, of your existence at that point like? Uh, football, it was, it was uh, I enjoyed it. I love football. But then I got kind of... I was pretty good, and I got a little cocky. I stopped going to practice and showing up at just the games and stuff. So I didn't take it seriously anymore. Mm-hmm. And I started gravitating more to the street life because I seen my mother struggle financially, and I started being around guys who were having money. Mm-hmm. And so I would, uh, one day, one of uh, someone I considered a friend who at 14 years old, and uh, he asked me, he said, uh, I'm tired of paying your way. I said, how much money do you have? I said, three bucks, it was my, which was my lunch money that my mother gave me daily. And uh, he handed me a, a, a 20 piece of uh, crack cocaine. And I started selling drugs from then on. And so that once I started selling drugs, it changed my mentality. I got caught by my mother, and she took it and flushed it. And, and I stayed away, you know, from I went and stayed with an aunt for a little while. But... I always came back. It was like a, uh, it was a easy way to melt, make money, and I also felt like I was somebody, mm. like they needed me, and so I had a twisted sense then of importance, mm. uh, and so that carried on, and I got into some, some trouble, and my mother was, you know, seeing that, you know, the best thing for me to do was probably to, to leave California. And so she sent me to my uncle and aunt's house in Las Vegas my senior year. And my uncle, he was was pretty good. He was the type of person that I never had been to a a back-to-school night. He took me to -to back-to-school night and dressed with the Hawaiian shorts and a a tank top and some flip-flops. Very embarrassing. But it was... uh, it was good to see the concern, and, and all they said, all they expected of me was to do good in school. Going back to when you were in California and with, with beginning to get involved in the drug trade, I mean, w- was it primarily an economic 
reason for you to get entrance in it? I mean, you mentioned a little bit that it was also being a part of a larger community. What, do you think it was mostly the fact that you were looking to make money, or was it a combination equally of wanting to make money and also wanting to be a part of a, a greater family or a greater community that needed you? Needed it you was out? more the uh, greater community and family's sense of family mm. because I couldn't spend the money. You know, I, my mother would, you know, if I showed up with anything new, she would be on. My mother was the type that, you know, you come home when the street lights come on, and if you're not, I'm coming to look for you. And so she was a uh, disciplinarian, and so uh, I couldn't do nothing outside of what she, uh, you know, she did for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to, if I did it, I had to have an excuse for anything I got. So it wasn't about the money, and that was the strange part about it to look back and realize it was never about money. It was more about belonging, mm-hmm. feeling a part of something, mm-hmm. feeling like people cared. And for me to have someone say, you know, I'm tired of taking care of you. You need to do it on your own. That was okay. You know, a little bit of money to go to movies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But it was more feeling like I belonged and was a part of something. So take us to Vegas. So you move to Vegas. You move in with, with your relatives. What happens that year? What happens then after that year as well? That year, I was more just focused on school and and working out. So I just it was I really didn't do much that year, but school and and watch my I had a, a two cousins that I used to watch them. I watched a lot of uh, Lion Kings and the and the Mermaid uh, that Mermaid uh, movie. So I watched a lot of that. But other than that, I didn't do too much. Once I came back to California. Uh, I had started searching for a job. I started working uh, part-time for uh, UPS. And so I ended up working there, and, and I was there for approximately three years. Mm-hmm. And what happened was I had a, me and my girl, I had a, my uh, son's mother. We got involved in a serious relationship. We ended up moving in together, and eventually she became pregnant with my son. And that's when things started uh, spiraling for me. I was, had, that's the father issues. I wanted to be this perfect father and didn't know what that was and didn't know that there is no such thing as a, as a perfect father. Mm-hmm. And so I just looked at my position in life and, and really started having a pity party for myself. And so my thing was money, if I could provide money financially. And so I gravitated back to the street life again. So you decide to, to get back and gravitate towards the street life. Do you, at that point, are you starting at the bottom rung of that whole environment? Are you trying to work your way up? What happens when you when you get back involved? Well, I, I started from the, back in the bottom rung. I remember uh, the neighborhood I was in when I first started uh, back selling drugs. Some guys came and knocked on the door looking for me. Like, when I started making a... a uh, some making a financial a dent in their income, they started, hey, what's going on? What are you doing around here? And so we had some issues and ended up being resolved peacefully. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I started from the bottom. And, and and so once I got into that that type of lifestyle, it, it I couldn't be the person who I really was to participate, especially, like you say, at the bottom. You know, maybe if you're at the top, you know, you can be who you are, but 
and the street life is more challenging. How much money are you making at that point? I mean, what's do you do you have any idea what the average hourly wage would have been at that time for you, or how much what a, what a salary would look like for that position over a given year? I couldn't say over a given year. I would say uh, maybe about five hundred to a thousand dollars a day. Okay. Yeah. So what happens after that? So you get involved back in the drug trade. Do you? And it sounds like there's a, a degree of peaceful resolutions to some of the turf wars. Yes. Um, what happens after that? Well, I just continue with that lifestyle. And this is where uh, eventually I uh, get into a confrontation with a guy who they were two guys that I knew. They were getting into a confrontation in front of my house. And I, I told him, I said, uh, if anything, if either one of y'all uh, start shooting and hit something in my house, I'm taking both of y'all out. And so later on, I'm going to the store, and a guy flashed a gun at me. So I started uh, carrying a gun. I got talked to a friend, and I got a gun from him. I started carrying a gun around. And eventually, it's what led to the crime that uh, had me incarcerated with uh, 15 in life plus a three-year gun enhancement. Mm -hmm. And so I was coming down the street uh, one night carrying a gun that I, was, uh, I had with me. Mm -hmm. And I seen two of my neighbors, who's a boyfriend and girlfriend, they were having an argument. And so one of them called her sister, one of the, my neighbor's sisters called me over there and asked me, could I help? And so I went over and I said, hey, what's going on? And they said that uh, the guy was taking her, her money. I said, could you give her, her money back? He said, no, mind your business. And so for me, I pulled out the gun. And I pointed at him. I said, give her money back. And he grabbed for, the, for my gun. When I had it pointed at him, I pulled back and shot him. And so after that, uh, I went back to my house. And later on, uh, the police came to my house and, and pulled me out. And I was incarcerated. What was that period of, of your life like? I mean, did you know right after the incident the severity of how it would impact your life? And... What were your initial thoughts after the incident happened? Were you terrified? Were you glad you had done it? What was your What was your reaction? Uh, actually, I couldn't believe I had done it. I had actually stood over him in disbelief of what my actions was, and I actually remember someone behind me snapped me out of it and was like, "You better get out of here. You better leave." Cause I, it didn't It didn't seem real. It was one of those moments like you feel like you're going to wake up. Mm -hmm. I just remember that. All I wanted to do was see my son before I went. You know, I, I knew where I was going, and I knew the severity of it. Did you think at that point, after, I guess during and after the trial and once you became incarcerated, did you think you would ever walk as a free man again in this world? Honestly, no. When I uh, went into prison, I had, especially once I went to prison and, and being in county jail, you know, you heard these things, a life sentence is a life sentence. And then when I went to you start off on level threes or level four, which is uh, people with more time or have been messing up if they have a life sentence. And so none of those guys were going home. Yeah. And so the first uh, seven, eight years, I never seen anyone with a life sentence go home. So, no, I didn't believe it was possible. For someone who's never been in prison, and I guess uh, particularly regarding San Quentin prison, what... Having been there and having left, what would you 
what are some things about the place that it would be very difficult for anyone who hasn't actually lived there to understand about what it's like to be there? I always tell people, for me, it's the, uh, the mental part. Like, I used to have dreams of, of being in a maze that you never could get out of. Or waking up at night and feeling like the the cell had somehow collapsed on your chest. You know, many people, when you think of prison, they focus on the physical part. And to me, the physical part wasn't the hard part. It was the mental part of waking up every day and, and realizing that it could be your last. And this is where it would end at. And this is to be the picture of, of the summation of your life. Like your worst moment in life would sum up who you were here on earth. Is it as dangerous and as difficult and as bad as generally people think about maximum security prisons? I mean, were you often in fear of your own, of physical retribution from other inmates? Were you constantly on alert when you weren't alone or when you weren't in your cell? What was a day like for you? I would say San Quentin was different. Uh, the first institution I started at was Susanville, and I remember my first week, uh, it was snow outside, and to see a ride had happened in the first week, I'm thinking like, a ride, and it's, a, it's snowing outside, couldn't you, you know, wait to summertime or something, but it was constantly being on alert and never knowing when or what could happen at any moment. Mm. And so it was like a, a friend who, or a lot of people who go to prison, they end up having high blood pressure. And so they come out, and, and one particular friend, he just passed out. He had been out for a little while and passed out. And he was taking the same blood pressure medicine that he took inside. But it was just that constant tension, constant, constantly being on alert. Is it alert from violence from other inmates? Is it some other cause why people generally have such high blood pressure? What's, the, what's generally the cause for people being on... Such I learned. I would say it's the it's the being in, from other inmates or other uh, groups group of in, inmates that keeps them constantly on alert because mm. you never know when something's going to happen. Do most of the inmates who are in there generally think are are many of them resigned to the fact that they're never getting out and that it almost makes other outbursts or other acts that they may not otherwise uh, do more. Uh, tolerable to them because they already regard their life pretty much as being over? I believe when you're in those, when you're in an institution where you see nobody going on, I believe, yes, it's a high, uh, 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 high pre uh, big prevalence of people who have given up. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're out, this is their life. And so it's the same thing on the streets a lot of times where they want to prove themselves here and it's the how do you prove yourself to show I don't care, I do anything? And so once you get uh, a rap for this person committing these violent acts, then a lot of people will leave you alone or stay away from you. When did you get any sense that there was a chance you might be able to get out? Was there a day, was there a proceeding that took place that made you think there's actually, there might be a chance that I might, I might get out of here one day? I actually thought I had a chance of getting out about fairly recent. Uh, fairly uh, new uh, recently when I got to San Quentin when I first came to San Quentin it was uh, 
a lot of hope there. Because many people live, think about San Quentin as how San Quentin used to be. Mm. It's a new place now. Mm. It's a, you know, at Susanville, it was no programs. It's out the way. You could come here, come to San Quentin and see people going home and see all the programs offered and see all the volunteers who are willing to help you make those changes and, and sincere about it. Mm. That's when I started seeing a ray of hope. Did you have a lawyer or someone who came into to prison and say, you know, the sentence that you were given may, may not actually go to its full duration, that there's a chance that, you know, in a year's time or a few years' time, you might get out of here? How did you learn that there was a chance for you to get out? Actually, first it was the, the seeing other people going home. Mm-hmm. Then it was I did also have some attorneys who mm-hmm. – Three or four, three or four attorneys who just came in and and wanted to take on my case and and fought for me and felt like uh, I didn't deserve the time that I got, I received, and they were so consistent and adamant about it, I couldn't lose hope. And so they would come and I remember one attorney told me he said, uh, "If you need to talk about, I don't care if it's football, and I don't even like football. Call me." Mm-hmm. And it just felt like to have people believe in you and see something more in you, it really uh, made me want to do better about myself. When you felt, when you got the idea that there was a chance that you might get out, did it change? How did your mindset change? How did your thinking change? Did you start dreaming again? Did you start thinking about what life might be like outside of prison? Did you start educating yourself? How did, what, what was going on in your head when you figured out there was a chance you might actually get out? Well, actually, I had came. What changed me was uh, a visit I had. I have, I was in Susanville, and my son was about four years old. And uh, it was like one of our first visits I seen him because uh, since I had left the county jail and went to San Quentin, you couldn't really have visits when you're in reception. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Susanville, and my family couldn't come up because it's a distance and it's uh, the the weather couldn't come up during certain times of the year. Mm-hmm. And so my son, they brought my son up, and he was with five other people from my family. Mm-hmm. And we had a good visit, enjoyed it, and, and I was, you know, excited about seeing him. But at the end of the visit, you know, he just sat on a table and grabbed for me and wouldn't let me go and started crying. And for me, that was like, I got it then. I was like, I'm sitting over here angry at my father and all this and I didn't repeat it the same thing and worse to him and then seeing him and realizing all he wanted was me he didn't care what I gave him what I looked like where I was at all he wanted was me and I said you know I went to myself and I was the first time I ever like really cried and I cried like you know nobody's business I just it came out snot the whole just like I was a baby and I said I would never do nothing in my life again to hurt him or take myself away from him any longer. Talk about the day you finally did get out. And I, I'd love to hear more about what what that was like, getting out. And in the eight months or so since you've been you've gotten out and you, you've re, reentered society, what what's your perspective like? And what like, Let's start first with what that day was like when you got out. And what's it like to have the time you spent in prison as a 
reference point to going about your daily life every day now and being able to do almost whatever you want? Uh, the first day out, uh, it was weird because they didn't, they don't tell you when your life sentence for some reason. They won't tell you the exact day you're leaving. And so I had hints that I'm coming home. And so my, I didn't want to have my people take off, my family take off work. And it wasn't a sure thing. Mm-hmm. And so they had came and told me once I was locked in my cell at like 12 o'clock at night that you're getting out tomorrow. And so I'm sitting in the holding pen. And luckily, I was sitting in the holding pen for about uh, four hours waiting to be released. And so I was able to get word to some guys that came to say goodbye to me to call, you know, my, my brother and my cousin to let them know I was getting out. And so they came and uh, picked me up. And now, now you're out, and now you live in the Bay Area. What Do you pinch yourself when you wake up in the morning now? Do you have a different perspective about your relationship with your family and your son? How do you? How has your mentality shifted since you got out? That's the scary part for me because it was so soon that it felt like that was a dream. Like It seemed like that was never really a part of my life, and that was like the scary part for me. Hmm. How quickly I just felt like I adjusted. It's it's moments where, you know, I have, it's certain things that people do that's normal, and it's not normal for me. And it, and people get on me at times because it's certain things that, you know, they take for granted that they know or been doing. And for me, it's like what, hmm. you know, how do you make these steps? And so that's the only time where I get kind of uh, brought back to. Yeah, you've been gone for a long time. Or even I just uh, recently took a, a job in Richmond for the Office of Neighborhood Safety. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking I would know all the people. And then to go out there and see the how young these kids are that's actually committing these crimes. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, these they were, you know, maybe one or two years old or weren't born last time I was on the streets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last question I want to ask you: um, What would you say to some to those kids who are that young, living in Richmond or living in any other part of the country or the world that is considering getting involved in um, in that in a dangerous field? And what can we as a society do to not put young people in positions where they're incentivized to get involved in drugs or what I know you've had a lot of time to think about this. What what if if you could be king for the day, how would you reconstruct society to make what happened to you very unlikely going forward in our society? I would uh for me, I believe society doesn't take enough accountability when it comes to our kids. Uh I worked in squires for eight years and I I have to admit I never met a bad kid. Mm-hmm. I met kids with bad coping skills, and and that's the most extreme that I've seen of a kid that I've met. And so, if I don't know if I'm hurting and and I have these wounds going on inside of me, and nobody, no doctor will come on, come and operate or work on me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just going to keep on screaming and making noise till somebody gets attention. And a lot of times they don't get that attention until they're, you know, 20, 30 years old. 30, 40 years old inside an institution with a life sentence from a man who's probably going corrupting to do even worse. 
and maybe you know maybe they get a chance to get to a place like San Quentin where men are doing something different mm-hmm. or but I would mandate that we invest in our our kids how we uh we have these you know these taxes and stuff on 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 homeowners to to furnish the schools but I think as parents we need to start putting in some income to start taking care of these kids and focusing on them. Uh, the coaches, we have coaches where football, they have maybe the only access they have at a man in their lives, mm-hmm. and all they focus on is football. It's other stuff going on. Instead of his grades is bad, you know, kick him off the team. His grades is bad. We need to invest in this kid a little more. But when you reject someone who's already feeling rejected, what do you think the end result is going to be? And so I believe... Uh, we be cons- as a society if we consistently and and really from the heart focus on our kids and want something different, they'll respond and do something different. James Houston, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.